You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you would take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts this morning, uh, you may recall that we've been looking at different uh, pictures of Christ presented in the Gospels. Uh, and so we come to, in a sense, Acts, which, although it's not one of the four Gospels, is the compendium to Luke. So you have Luke, Acts, it's really two books together. Uh, and so I'm going to be reading Acts 10, uh, picking up midway through verse 23 and reading to the end of the chapter, verse 48. So Luke 10, and please, if you are able, uh, stand with me for the reading of this text. The next day, Peter started out with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This ends the reading of God's Word. DC Comics was in the news this week, not because of its new movie coming out, Shazam, uh, but because of actually its postponement of a projected project. Uh, DC Comics had in the works a book series called Second Coming. Uh, and after receiving over 200,000 complaints, they decided to temporarily shelve it. The reason is the storyline. The storyline of the comic book series was to feature an immature Jesus Christ who comes alongside Sun Man, who teaches him how to be a real superhero and to finally please Jesus' disappointed father. You can't script anything better than that to say to us, don't we need to understand the truth about who Jesus Christ is? Which is why leading up to Easter, we've been looking at this subject from the different point of the Gospels, simply telling people the truth about who Jesus is. And so we come to our final section this morning in the book of Acts. Now, as I mentioned, Acts is the second compendium part of the Gospel of Luke picks up right where Luke's Gospel ends, continues the story for us. But in this book, we come across this scene in Acts chapter 10 and 11 about Cornelius. Now, this is a very pivotal moment in the life of the early church. And we can ascertain this by a couple things. One is the story that's told in Acts 10 is repeated again different parts in Acts 11 and even comes up again later at the Jerusalem Council when Peter stands up to speak about the change and transition happening in the church. So in other words, we see here something in this is very important for us to learn about who Jesus is. And we've looked at Jesus Christ starting with the crucified Savior to Jesus Christ being the misunderstood Savior in John's Gospel. And now we're going to turn our attention to what does it mean to speak of Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. And so look at me how this passage begins in Acts 10 and verses 23 and 24. It says, Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior saves those whom God has called. And so if we think of Christ's power, he saves those whom God has called. And this is a very fascinating scene that although it's going to shift and talk about Cornelius, and what happens there in Cornelius' salvation. I want us to back up for a minute and think, when did this narrative really begin? And began with the conversion of Peter, 
And so if you think back to the Gospels, you have Peter and his brother Andrew are fishing. Jesus comes up to them. They're at the Sea of Galilee fishing. And he says, come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately leave their nets. And that's the start of this spiritual journey in Peter's life with the others. So we want to keep that in focus. In every way, Peter has become and is a fisher of men. He's left those nets behind to pursue a much greater calling. And so what you find here in Acts 10 in this situation with Cornelius is Peter's first recorded sermon to Gentiles. So he spoke in Acts 2 in a very powerful way to the Jews in Jerusalem. But now the attention's shifting and he speaks to Gentiles. The net has widened and the good news now comes to a Gentile named Cornelius. Well, let's look, notice in verse 24, we, we need to set the situation for us. They're in Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of Judea. It was the residency of the Roman governor. So a very important place, a place that was certainly very much pro-Roman in its loyalties and devotion. So this is where Cornelius lives. And so you notice in verses 30 through 32, a little more background as to what precedes this entire situation. Verse 30, we read, Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So you have two events going on here simultaneously behind the scenes. Cornelius is in prayer. Uh, he is a follower of Judaism, but it doesn't indicate he's a full-fledged convert to Judaism. Uh, but here he is in prayer, and he's visited by an angel who gives him this message. Simultaneously, we know Peter is in Joppa. He's up on a rooftop, and he's praying, and God speaks to him in another form and vision. And this is happening unbeknownst to both of them until this moment when Cornelius says, Peter, here's why. I've asked you to come here. So in that background, we notice that Cornelius was a good man. He was a generous man, but he was not a righteous man. In other words, he is not a believer. He is a Gentile. And as I said, he's, he's a very outstanding person in his community. But you want to keep in mind, he's mentioned as referring to good or acceptable, but that does not mean he's saved or justified. So this is the Gentile. Now, looking at the situation from Peter's perspective, when Peter receives his vision, which we'll get to, as that's ending, these men show up to come get him. Cornelius has sent individuals to go get Peter, bring him back. 
Peter, without even having really opportunity to second guess himself, responds and goes. And the scene he arrives on is really every preacher's dream. Because notice what happens in verse 33 of Acts chapter 10. Verse 33, it says, So I sent for you immediately, Cornelius speaking, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So in other words, Cornelius sends the men to go get Peter. That's at least a two-day journey. So they're gone for two days. They will spend the night. Then they're going to have to travel back two days. There's the four days from which I sent you. During that time, Cornelius has been busy. He's invited friends, relatives, and, and packed them into this sort of one open room area in his home. Peter shows up. Surprise that one, there's so many people there. But the attitude of these people is, Peter, we just can't wait till you open your mouth and tell us what God has put on your heart. I mean, as, as a pastor, that, that's your dream. You know, showing up somewhere where there's more people than you ever expected, and they're sitting on the edge of the seat saying, just, just tell us what God says. I mean, you listen to that and you say, boy, Peter, it couldn't get any better than this. What an opportunity. Because God saves those he has called. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. But now you look further at what Peter does say. And you have a very good picture here of the presentation of the gospel. You know, what, what should we include when we have that opportunity, that wide-open door, to present the message of Christ. And so you notice in verses 34 through 43, um, the record of what Peter said. Uh, and I just want to pull out a few pieces here. In verse 34, it says, Then Peter began to speak. Now, this may sound sort of odd. Well, of course he began to speak. Some translations have. Peter opened his mouth. But that's a very important term from the Old Testament. It indicates a prophet is opening his mouth with the authority to speak God's message. And so we don't want to miss. It's not just that Peter has to feel like he has to say something because he's in a room full of people. But more importantly, Peter has something to say to them that is from God. But then it goes on in verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And right there, you have this reminder, in the good news of Christ, somewhere where you have to speak about the nature of God. Who is this God who sacrificed his one and only son for our sins? And remember that the cultural tension leading up to this time is everybody fell into one of two categories. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And there were clear cultural boundary lines drawn over centuries of history that were etched into the mind and thinking, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles as well. And so therefore, in the midst of those changes and cultural stereotypes, we need to inject into that, what is the nature of God? 
He's a God who does not judge based on external appearances. He does not base his judgment on race, ethnicity, but on the condition of the heart. In a day and an age where we see people very concerned, and you could say rightly so, about cases of racism, uh, things like that, we have a God who's never said that was acceptable. Who said it's not acceptable, not because it's not politically correct, it's not acceptable because it's contrary to my nature. A God who is impartial. But then it goes on in this discussion, and notice verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. We need to make sure somehow we convey, like Peter, this message has come from God. It's not a product of our church. It's not a product of our Western understanding of what the Bible teaches. This is good news whose author is God. And Peter's very clear on this. But then as well, he includes in verses 37 and 38, a, a quick overview of the ministry of Christ. Note how he says there, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So he gives you a panoramic view. Here's the, the life and ministry of Christ. Anointed by God's spirit, the chosen one, the promised one. And that is one reason why I think a good preparation for Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is going back through the Gospels, reminding us, what, what did Jesus do? What did he say when he walked on earth? And how does all that lead up to and culminate in really the next aspect of the gospel, and that is Jesus' death, resurrection, and anticipated return. And Peter includes that in verses 39 and following. He doesn't just stop and say, well, remember this good example Christ set before you. But in verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. And the way Peter accentuates this hanging on a tree, you know, to, to put on a tree, that can certainly include what we think of the, the cross, the crucifixion, but it accentuates he was one who was seen as cursed by God. Just kind of coming out of the, the Jewish background of, you know, Deuteronomy, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. But then he goes on and says, not only did he die in such a manner, but verse 40, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What a, a beautiful description and a concise summary. This is who Christ is. This is the good news that as his servant, I have the privilege of 
explaining to you. And what happens next takes, I think, everyone by surprise, but it really shouldn't if we understand that Christ is the all-sufficient Savior, that he saves those whom God has called. But in verses 44 through 48, you have what has been called the Gentile Pentecost. In a sense, deliberately described to match the scene depicted in Acts 2. And you can probably anticipate why the language here needed to be as precise as it was. Because was it important that in the development of the church that Jewish believers would see that Gentile believers are one in Christ with them? That there's not two kinds of conversion experiences, one if you were Jewish and then a different one, maybe a lesser kind of one if you were Gentile. Because as you scan through verses 44 through 48, you notice that based on verse 43, where Peter said all the prophets were testifying and pointing to Christ, he then uses similar phraseology in verses 44 through 48 that would match what he said in Acts 2. So for example, notice he speaks of the fact that the Holy Spirit came on all of them. You go down a little bit further in verse 45, the gift of the Holy Spirit is referenced as well in Acts. The Spirit being poured out is referenced in Acts 2. And the speaking in tongues, a, a testifying element that at this point in history was critical to confirm and affirm the reality and power of Jesus Christ. And this is why this, these two chapters, Acts 10 and 11, this story is retold and repeated to drive home that message. There, there's only one church. And, and yes, the, the Jews were first extended that offer and, and many turned away from that. Now that net has been broadened. It's to Jew and Gentile. But whoever comes to Christ, there is only one church. And the evidence of that is the same for whether you're Jew or you're Gentile. So the all-sufficiency of Christ is seen in the reminder that those whom God calls, he saves. But at the same time, you may have noticed there's another story running through this narrative. And it's one where Peter is the main character. Because I think we also want to look at this and say, if God is in Christ, the all-sufficient Savior, then that means that God also sanctifies all those that he has saved. So it's not just a story about well, what happened to Cornelius and all of those people packed into that room. But isn't it also the ongoing story of how Peter had been called, was already saved, and yet God now, in Christ, was continuing that work of sanctifying him. And just for the, the sake of agreement, remember that process of sanctification, we mean that ongoing work of the Spirit by which we are continually transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And so let me illustrate where I, I believe we see this, where this is also a story running side by side with Peter's salvation being worked out and refined. 
So go to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 10, and we take you back now to that other vision that Peter received while Cornelius was receiving his visitation. And in Acts 10, verses 15 and 16, uh, the vision that Peter receives is there's this large sheet, four corners, probably representing, you know, the four corners of the earth, like everything. It's filled with all these four-footed creatures, things that would have been considered unclean for a Jew to eat. Peter would have known that as a Jew. And, and God basically says, kill and eat. And then you notice what happens here in verse 15. Peter relays what he heard. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So in this vision, Peter is told three times, kill and eat everything. In other words, God's saying, I'm declaring this all clean now. And Peter, a very good Jew, says, I can't eat. That stuff's unclean. Three times the message comes back. Peter, don't call unclean what I have now declared clean. As soon as this vision ends is when Peter is greeted by the visitors from Caesarea who say, you, you got to come with us. So in looking at this scene, what has changed in Peter? What was an area in his walk with God that needed to be sanctified and refined further? Well, now look at chapter 10, verse 23. In verse 23, it says, Then Peter invited the men into the home to be his guests. Now you have a number of little changes going on here. One is Peter is staying in the home of a tanner. Now, the job of a tanner would render a Jew unclean. So, in other words, before you would need to go to the temple, you would need to make sure you pursued the proper procedures to be clean once again. And I think you start to see a change. Peter has already, in one sense, moved away from that man-made impression that this distinction was still in place. He's in the home of someone who technically is unclean, although they are Jewish. Three times God has to repeat the message of the vision to Peter. Is that important? Well, we could say, well, Old Testament principle, you need three witnesses, three confirmations to establish any charge. That may be one reason it's repeated three times. I think the other is, this is, this just blows Peter's mind. What do you mean that there's no more the clean, unclean foods? What's changed here and why? Then notice in verse 32 of Acts 10, when Peter does arrive there, it says in verse 32, they say, send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. And then you start to see the change. In verse 34, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. When Peter says, I now realize, he's not taking credit for himself here, but saying, I, I now am grasping 
what, what God was telling me here. And the fact that I'm standing here in front of Gentiles who by my presence coming into your home would have rendered me ceremonial unclean. That all that has been done away with in Christ Jesus. And maybe as a quick little aside, interesting note, Peter was in Joppa. Does the name Joppa ring any bells for you? Isn't that the city where Jonah fled when God called him to take the message to Gentiles? Hear the opposite response. He's in Joppa, and God's going to tell Peter, Peter, take this message to the Gentiles. And there is a sanctifying process, a transformation going on in Peter's life. He's already called. He's already a disciple. He's an apostle. But God is still working on the heart and mind of Peter. But not only is he working on the heart and mind of Peter, but every part of this is a reminder of how God works in the lives of those who put their trust in him. Because when Peter leaves to go with this group of people sent to get him, he takes individuals from Joppa with him. And so you notice in verses 45 and 46, it says the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, so these Jewish Christians who Peter said, come on guys, you got to come with me and, and not just accompany me, but let, let's bear witness to whatever God's going to do here. He says the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit have been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. There's not just a work going on of refinement in Peter, but now these other believers who have come with him, who will now take this same story back, and it won't be just the word of one individual, it'll be multiplied by this group that has come. What a picture of, of God sanctifying and working in those he has already called and saved. They, they are astonished. Literally, they, they're in wonder. They're, they're speechless at this. In other words, there's no ex other explanation than this is a work of God. This clearly transcends anything cultural. It is supernatural. In every way, this is a house on fire here. It's a house that has been transformed by coming face to face with the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. I turn the page and go to Acts chapter 15. Later on, Peter, who still throughout his life was being perfected and refined by Christ. But in Acts 15, you have the Jerusalem Council. Uh, where they need to render some guidance to the church on these different issues that are still coming up at times between Jews and Gentiles. And what do you do now when you have both in one church together? But the scene that happened back in Acts 10 and 11 has not been forgotten by Peter. And so you see in Acts chapter 15 and verses 7 through 9, um, after the apostles and elders are kind of considering this discussion, it says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you 
that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by the giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter would not have said that prior to God speaking and changing him and refining him. And so it's a fascinating account, not just of what God is doing in the hearts of those who he will draw to himself, but what is the work he continues to do in those who already know him? And I think for most of us, that's where we find ourselves. What is God seeking to refine or change in you and in me? I like reading through, at times, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's written back in the 16th century. Uh, it's patterned after the book of Romans, but it consists of like 52 readings to kind of carry you each Sunday of the year. Uh, but question number two in the catechism is an interesting one. Uh, it simply asks, what do you need to know? What's necessary to know to live in comfort and to die happily? And the answer is, you need to know three things. You need to know the misery of your own sin. You need to know how you were redeemed from the misery of your own sin. And then you need to know how you should be so thankful to God for your redemption. And in a world where we want to kind of have so much information at our fingertips, those three necessities remain the same today. Fleshed out in this passage, but to be lived out in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And when we read of your life-giving and life-changing power in Christ Jesus, it is not a history lesson that we are rehearsing, but it is to be an everyday reality that we see in our lives who have professed that you are our Savior and our Lord, who we also see take root in the lives of those that you are calling that we have been commanded to bring that message to. May we be faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.